We are back. I apologize for any background noise you hear during this intro. Hybrid Fitness is rocking and rolling right now. After a bit of a summer hiatus, Andrew and I are back. And in this episode of the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, we have our first Ask Me Anything, otherwise known as a new age way to say Q and A. If you want to know the questions asked and answered in this episode, just look in the episode notes and you will see all of the questions that we go through in this episode of the CMB Health Podcast. And I was actually supposed to post this a month ago. So my apologies. Regardless, we are back to regular posting and we're kicking off the beginning of our August-September return with this AMA. So enjoy. Have we uh, have we done one of these? I can't recall if we. I think this will be AMA number one. Oh, wow! Well, Very exciting for everybody. We have journal club number two. <laughs> and for those listening, AMA or ask me anything is just a way to say Q and A differently. I don't really get the difference. But it's in the podcast world. It, it seems to be yeah. in vogue. I don't know if it's supposed to be a Q&A is very specific to a topic where an AMA is broader, where it doesn't have to be specifically related I, to something. I, I feel like a Q&A usually follows a seminar or a panel discussion. Yeah, because if that's the case, uh, this isn't broad. These are all health-related questions. I don't think people There's will be theme. too interested. There's in a theme. Th- yeah. Certainly, <laughs> certainly. So... Um, I'll go through these one at a time in the same order that they were asked, and you might as well just answer all of them first, and if I have something to say that I think can be helpful. I mean, it's unlikely that you'll have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take all the air out of the room with my answer, so I'll let you go first, and then we'll just go through, and in my experience, these things take way longer than they should, so hopefully we'll get through all these questions. If not, we'll just kick them just to, to Just our, to get people really excited. Yeah, yeah we'll <laughs> kick them over to our next, uh, our next AMA. So question number one, for an overweight person, if you could only choose calories or food quality to manage which would you pick? And I assume they would like to have a why element to this as well, although not asked directly <laughs> yeah. in the question. I thought these were all just yes, no <laughs> answers. Um, Keep this brief. Yeah. So it's, yeah, interesting question. I think when when I'm counseling somebody on nutrition, I almost always start with food quality because I think you can get the the quickest wins that way. And if you focus on improving food quality, that is moving towards a more whole food type diet, moving away from the processed foods. Um, you remember our dietitian guest, Jennifer Broxerman, talked about the different levels of foods. So level one being the ultra processed down to a level three, which is whole food. So if you're moving towards that level three, I think there's going to be a natural reduction in caloric density anyway. So if you're able to improve the, the quality of your diet overall, then you're probably at the same time getting a natural caloric reduction along with that. So Is that your answer? That's, that's my answer, <laughs> yeah. So I think if, if you can make good 
substitutions or good choices that replace you know something that you're that you're already eating and you move towards that more whole food side then that's always going to be better and will move you in the right direction yeah my answer is the same but maybe with a slightly different justification so uh i would say always food quality first but uh more so because and we we talked about this in that that podcast you mentioned with jen that in my experience if somebody's going to make a reasonable difficult behavioral change in their life uh, like diet which diet certainly is it has to go beyond just the very specific thing there has to be other elements of lifestyle change that go along with that so to say to someone it's not like anyone says eat the exact same thing don't change anything but just eat less or I should say most people don't say that anymore. Maybe there are some people out there who still. Uh, yeah, but isn't isn't that the basis of things like Weight Watchers? Yeah. Like it's like eat whatever you want, yes. but we'll give you a point system that you can't go over. So it's like you can yeah you can constitute your diet however you like, and it is just pure calorie restriction. But within that, I'm sure they make suggestions of what they think is a better way of eating and the points system i think is designed in a way that's supposed to influence healthier eating because you can eat more more often if you choose these things where if you have you know a piece of cake you're using up all your points in one sitting um but yeah there's there's certainly still some of that out there you don't want to blow all your credit right (laughs) out of the gate yeah but uh, i think if someone's going to make uh, long-term change it has to encompass many different changes at the same time so if you say eat the same but just eat less you're not really changing your mentality you're not changing your lifestyle you're not changing your philosophy or relationship with food you're just trying to manage a very specific dial that I don't think is going to have longevity. Whereas if you're changing food quality and you're changing your taste preference and you're eating in a way that's moving you away from those foods that are clearly very difficult for you to manage, it's going to go a lot further. So changing food quality not only has benefits that go beyond just weight loss, but I think it's important to completely overhaul certain parts of your life and your diet if you are going to effectively uh, make long-term change, which just focusing on calories is not going to do for a person. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure maybe it works for a very small segment of the population, um, but But those people probably already eat fairly well uh, and indulge in a more practical way and it's just a structure for them to fall into to eat a little bit less of what they're already doing where someone who has real eating issues with problematic foods that are destructive and problematic i don't know that just slightly reducing the amount it's like if you're an alcoholic you can't just have a few less drinks per day you get it's you got to get away from it you have to get you have to get yourself out of that habit you can't go to bars and pretend you're going to drink water you have to remove yourself from that habituation entirely and i think when it comes to diet people need to think about it the same way you need to remove yourself from certain environments you have to get certain things out of your house and it becomes very difficult for someone to manage those problematic eating behaviors 
when you can keep all the same things in all the same places and do everything else the same. The only thing you're going to change is the quantity of these things that you eat. Yeah. I don't think that's effective for most people. So you, and you have to inconspicuously throw out the treats that grandma brings over. And <laughs> yeah, we have a we have a cupboard that's out of reach where basically Halloween candy, things they get from school, things they get from birthday parties, all events. It just sits in there. And I don't even know why I put it in there because it's, <laughs> no one's ever going to eat it. And this is going to be a complete... Uh, Maybe a, just in the case of you know, nuclear war. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the food that will survive. You know, yeah. and the way things are going, maybe it's uh, with food and fertilizer shortages potentially on the horizon. Maybe yeah. I should uh, maybe I Stock, should be more serious pile. about because at that point, calories will be the only thing. Thing that absolutely this That's will right. derail us a little yeah. bit but uh i just need to vent on this and now's the, the, the appropriate time to do it <laughs> after the first question <laughs> yeah. yeah okay my kids play soccer just like little timbit soccer my four and six year old right soccer excellent sponsor by the way yes uh <laughs> and in the, in that vein of the timbits sponsored soccer Every week, there's a parent who's responsible for bringing a snack for the kids. Okay. Now, first of all, it's a 30-minute soccer game. Why does anybody need to bring snacks for kids <laughs> when they run around for 30 minutes? This is my first problem. Why is this even a thing? And every parent brings the same thing. Bear paws and fake yogurt drinks that are just basically pop with yogurt in it or the yogurt version uh, of pop and i'm thinking to myself first of all i'm a like i'm offended which i shouldn't be but i'm offended like why are you bringing this for my kids to eat because it's the same thing every time i if a parent brings over things like that to my kids that they're distributing to every other child it's very hard for me to say to my kids no you cannot have that right for a lot yeah. of reasons yeah. <laughs> considering the children and just the social implications especially of in, like in the that. moment yeah. and then how not that i'm that concerned with it but i am immediately by doing that pointing the finger at other parents and being like this is perhaps something that you shouldn't be giving to your kids and, indeed and, and yeah. i'm sure all of them listen to this when podcast, it comes to like computer yeah. community sports events for toddlers and above i i don't need to play that role but it is it it does turn me off a little bit and the what i do is they'll get three things i'll let them have the yogurt drink thing because i guess that's the best of those things and the the other treats they the kids never see them i'll find something else to give them to accommodate their need for a treat after seeing all that but why can't when i played soccer you got watermelon or orange slices halfway through a one-hour game and now all it is is processed food, and it's the same processed food every single time. Yeah, because it's way it's way easier. And with many of these kids, it's probably the thirty minutes of activity they get per day, and yeah. that's followed by processed food for them to eat. I I wish it was appropriate for me to say something about it. Like I feel Did, like I need to so, send a message to the league and so be when, like, when, these when are kids' <laughs> activities. Tell parents to stop bringing dessert for kids to eat at 10 in the morning after their 30 minutes of vigorous activity outside. I wish everyone could see the vein <laughs> popping out of your head right now. There's many. Yeah. <laughs> I assume you brought 
celery sticks and an educational pamphlet. Something, yeah. <laughs> something along those lines. Laura, uh, Laura, my wife, she's of course much more concerned about image than I am. So she wants to bring things that she thinks other that are socially like, acceptable will like. Yeah. But it, but I say no. <laughs> we can cut up a watermelon and bring it for kids. A watermelon's delicious. And I don't know if it's yeah. because parents think that's what they should bring or if parents are have just become so lazy they can't cut a watermelon or oranges or whatever. Like I feel I, I don't yeah. I don't know. T ball after T ball now the expectation is popsicles. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the response to the question that nobody asked of what makes you upset over the weekend, that's it. <laughs> that's my every one of my Saturday starts like that. It, it's 930 a.m. Thank you for bringing my child yogurt drinks and bear paws to eat after running for a half an hour. Very necessary. Anyhow. Question, question okay. number two. Question two. <laughs> Will late night eating lead to weight gain, specifically disproportionately to daytime eating? So someone uh, eats this, roughly the same amount of food, same kinds of food, but they eat it more towards the end of day than evenly spread right earlier in the day. Is there a specific problem, health effect when it comes to right. late night eating. So, yeah. So this is addressing the timing issue. So there's the the three main variables when it comes to nutrition, which is quality, quantity, and timing. And we've talked about intermittent fasting, et cetera, in the past. So I guess the, the question from a scientific standpoint would be if you eat exactly the same thing at midnight versus noon, is it treated differently by your physiology, metabolism, et cetera? Um, I would say in humans, we don't probably really know the answer to that question. At least I'm not aware of any, any good data that exists to, to tell us. I have to imagine that there is some difference in how the fuel is being used, as in which metabolic pathways are being activated when they see certain nutrients based on the time of day, because we have normal hormonal fluctuations throughout the day. So our cortisol goes up in the morning, which increases your metabolic rate, and it drops down while you're sleeping. You get growth hormone spikes twice a day. You get insulin-like growth factor variation throughout the day. So all of these things are having an impact. Um, ultimately, what, what that boils down to, I'm not sure we can say. Um, but I, I would answer the question by saying there, there are many other drawbacks to eating late at night, which could be associated with worse metabolic health and weight gain for a number of different reasons. So one would be you're far less likely to be active late uh, in the evening or at night. So after you eat, you're probably sedentary immediately after that. So you're not actually putting a demand on the fuel source that you've just added into the system. So that means that you're more likely probably to store those calories. Um, it's going to interrupt your sleep. So one of the you know sleep hygiene suggestions is don't eat within a couple of hours of going to bed because you're going to affect your, uh, your circadian rhythm, your ability to go through normal sleep cycles while you're in digestion mode. If you already have heartburn or esophageal reflux, then you're going to make that worse as well. Um, so I think, you know, for, for those reasons, you know, and I think also from a behavioral standpoint, the choices, going back to the quality p 
part, the choices that people are making for the type of food that they're eating later in the evening and at night are probably not as good as the choices that they're making, say, for lunch or for dinner time, which is usually far more planned and prepped in advance, whereas stuff that people are eating at night is usually what can I grab quickly out of the pantry. Not just that, but uh, you would think that this would also go hand in hand with some form of distracted eating. Like if you're eating a lot at yeah, night, you're, you're watching probably TV. Not, you're probably not yeah. sitting in a chair yeah. in your office r- reading a book or doing yeah. something. Or you're you're not out moving around. You're probably sitting and staring at the TV, uh, yeah. which usually leads to consuming more of whatever you're yeah. eating than you would under other circumstances. Yeah, you're not you're not mindfully consuming something at that point. Yeah, yeah. but I would agree. I. If your diet is terrible, then late night eating is not really the big consideration. Right. right? You got to think about food quality. You got to think about getting exercise in. All those sorts of things are going to matter more. But if you're at a place where your diet is fairly well regulated, but you struggle with with having a greater appetite or access to food at the end of the day, I think you're right that it's more uh, it's more the interruption to sleep the uh, behavioral implications that come along with it. And I've actually read uh, a few studies just in the past year showing that uh, protein assimilation is much greater earlier in the day than it is as the day goes on. And I don't remember if, if they could actually propose a mechanism for that, but they're suggesting that if you eat equal amounts of protein earlier in the day versus later, that protein is much more likely to be used uh, to be synthesized, so turned into muscle, than if you eat a bunch of it at the end of the day. And, and information like that is, it's it's honestly not important for the the casual user out no. there, right? Unless it's, it changes what you do. Sure, but most people are not getting enough protein to begin with. And yeah. so information like that is, you know, if you are a, a high caliber athlete and you're really trying to get the edge to shave off, you know, a fraction of a second of a time or whatever, and you're competing at elite levels, then something like that might be worthwhile taking into consideration for timing when you're getting your protein, because everything else is is very precisely calculated in what you're doing with your nutrition and your physical activity routine. But for most of us who aren't in that situation, I think, yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting, but just getting enough protein is the the first battle for most people yeah and anecdotally i know that i when i eat more at night even of the most high quality foods i'm more sluggish the next day like i know that the more that i eat the more that i concentrate my food towards the end of the day the closer i eat to bedtime the worse i feel in the morning which of course isn't know. it kind of like your normal routine though it you is most but if the difference is a little bit less ending earlier in the evening okay. like let's say if, I, if my average bedtime is 10 o'clock ending eating at eight o'clock versus nine fifty nine, <laughs> like that that's a bit that's a big difference towards the end of the day and it seems like that's uh it seems like the problem gets exponentially worse so it's not like you know ending eating at nine versus eight is twice as much of an issue it's actually like three to four to five times worse so the good every second closer to bedtime that i continue to eat i feel exponentially worse the next day if that makes sense interesting anyhow moving on uh 
if late night eating is an issue, how do you solve it? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, it's a behavioral question, right? Um, so I think you, you need to, to go into analysis mode and, and figure out, well, I mean, why, why are you eating enough calorie or so many calories at that time? You know, what is it about your daily routine? Is it that you work shifts and you're finishing work later in the day? Uh, do you have family and kids and everything's so busy that you're, you know, using that as sort of your me time. I reward myself because that's the only time I have to actually, you know, feel like I'm enjoying something. Um, so I think you just really need to get curious about it and go, you know, what, what is it? And I think another important question is, am, am I actually enjoying this or am I just doing it because it's habitual and, you know, as we already addressed, because it's mindless and I'm just looking for distraction or I'm, I'm bored and I don't have something else that I feel like I'm doing. And so a way that a lot of people feel boredom is to just go to the kitchen and, and eat something because you feel like you're doing something. Um, so, I mean, this, I don't think there's any one solution. You just, it has to be a person to person investigation and and work with that individual to go all right so let's let's figure this out and then how can we take steps to address that yeah i think people eat at night for three reasons one is they're killing time <laughs> two they're suppressing stress anxiety sadness anger any sort of like emotional uh emotional problem that they're having that eating uh suppresses probably far more likely to have to do emotional eating at at that time and and then there's the people where that is their only time to themselves and it's the same reason why people usually stay up way later than they should is they're trying to squeeze something out of the day in an inappropriate way when if you just went to bed when you were tired and stopped eating when you weren't hungry anymore you'd wake up the next day feeling better you wouldn't regret not staying up and not eating but in the moment that's a very hard uh decision for people to make but i will i will say this actually before i get there and i also assume about the person who's asking the question because it's the same person who asked both these questions as soon as you ask will will late night eating lead to x any sort of negative outcome you probably already know that it does before you even ask that question. You're hoping to get some sort of authorization where late night eating isn't a problem and you can just continue doing it because it's a very difficult thing to stop doing. Um, so just thinking about the problem as a problem and identifying and accepting it as a problem is usually more than enough to get somebody towards some element of solution. But most of the time, whether it's you know whether it's it's consciously or subconsciously we really want to hang on to that crutch and we're more interested in finding justifications to keep it around than we are in finding reasons to change it so just thinking about it alone like you mentioned is this thing serving me (laughs) is this a net positive in my life am i getting something out of this ultimately just being interested in asking those questions will usually lead somebody to their own solution but for those people who want the quick fix i'll give it to you right now if after you're done eating the appropriate amount of whatever it is that you're eating where you know you shouldn't eat anymore if you brush your teeth i will tell you right now it is incredibly difficult to go back and eat again after you've spent the time 
brushing your teeth. And it sounds incredibly silly, but it's pretty difficult to eat at night, like have your one snack, go brush your teeth, sit down on the couch, and then 20 minutes later, get up and go eat again. Because it's not just the fact that you brushed your teeth, you've identified that eating should stop. And now it's not just going back for a few more. You you can't pretend that you aren't going into overeating mode. You've, you've set the marker there and you're crossing the boundary and you have to face up to the fact that you're crossing the boundary before you do it. So it's almost like just putting a pin in it, like now it's time to stop eating and just thinking about it in your mind isn't enough. Taking the action to actually brush your teeth and end eating is it can be quite powerful for people. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Try it. Another yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> this, I I don't follow that advice. But um, if I did, it would work for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, well, it's not not an issue that I contend with. Uh, but another thing I might suggest is. Um, you know, think about what are, what are the one, two, three most common foods that you reach for at that time. More than likely, it's a you know shelf ready edible product sitting in your pantry. And if you if you find yourself craving those things, and those are the ones that you go to, think about just not stocking them, because again, it's an additional barrier that you need to get over in order to you know figure out if that's the problem. Or get your partner to hide pieces of gravel randomly in some of those treats <laughs> and uh crack a f- yeah. crack a few teeth and uh you won't go back or just give them permission <laughs> like if you see me with my hand in this bag you can slap me in the face yeah that will not that will not work i think that's uh i think that's a solution uh i think that's a, a future problem wrapped in a pretend solution okay moving on is there a f- I love these questions. Is there a form of alcohol that is better than others? Like so what, what like, what, like what's what's more you, delicious? Like <laughs> physician, what I like are you, a what sour. are you giving me permission to drink? Do you actually like whiskey sours? I love whiskey sours. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it's exactly the type of drink a person like you a would enjoy. A little pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, it is the drink of people who don't really like to drink. The bartender has to wear a leather apron while making it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or be at a resort somewhere. <laughs> um, so, I mean, uh, the alcohol ethanol uh, what you're consuming is uh, i mean drink to drink to drink it it's the same right so the alcohol content if you know what your your drink substitutions are so like you know one spirit beverage versus one beer versus uh i don't know what it is a six or eight ounce glass of wine is that what it is it's a six ounce i believe um but even that's just a toxicity marker spread across those drinks right yeah so right yeah but so in terms of in terms of alcohol consumption, so clearly this is an issue of you don't want to overdo it because there are very clear harmful effects of it. So yeah, unless somebody has a, a problem drinking history with alcoholism or alcoholism in the family, because there is actually a very strong uh, genetic and environmental component to it, um, I don't tell people that like you, you can't drink, I think, a moderation approach is is entirely reasonable. Um, that being said, I I think that the guidelines that suggest that 
it's perfectly reasonable for a man to have 14 drinks a week and a woman to have, I don't know, what's nine drinks a week or something like that is ridiculous and unnecessary. I don't think ever you need to be sitting down and having two beers every night. Like that's that's actually suggested or 14 in one awesome night. (laughs) Yes. Well, they do. Yeah. So the the definition of a binge is more than five standard drinks in a single drinking session. Man, regardless of size, (laughs) regardless of size. Yeah. So, no, I, I think if if you're using a couple of drinks every night as part of your unwinding routine, then that's another point of self-examination that I would encourage people to undergo. Um, And then you hear a lot of people, oh, well, I just, you know, I usually only drink on the weekend and then I have a few more. So that to me also could be potentially problematic. Again, it's if you if you really require alcohol to enhance your enjoyment of life or your social circumstance or whatever, then think about that. You know, is that really something that's good? Is that really the sort of model that you want to have for your children, for their future relationship with alcohol? So I think we need to think about all of those things. Um, But, you know, I think having somewhere between one to four drinks in a week is probably fine and there's probably not going to be any major downstream health effects but when it comes to what you're drinking uh i'd say there's you know there's really bad things like the sugar containing coolers and lemonades and whiskey sours sort of things there's <laughs> I put monk fruit, <laughs> of course. Oh, I didn't know this was like you, you're making I, your so own. I have, yeah. I don't have a leather apron, but <laughs> so yeah. I mean, it's almost like you know, you know, it's it's an indulgent thing, right? Like you know, it's potentially bad, so you can make less bad choices with with what you're consuming. So anything that contains extra sugar, then. Do not overindulge in those. Like, don't buy those things by the case. Like, if you're going to go out for a dinner or something with friends and you're having a cocktail, sure. I mean, by all means, whatever. But it that should not be a routine habit. I think when it comes to you know, different types of, of alcohol overall, probably the one with the, the best uh, overall evidence of maybe being not harmful potentially some beneficial effects is the red wine um but even with that i mean the the evidence is certainly not convincing yeah i i I don't think i have too much i don't think i have too much to add to that the the only other thing i'll say is that assuming you're you're consuming alcohol moderately and assuming that you're not drinking a cocktail that's just filled with sugar then you also have to think about the enjoyment factor of the thing you're drinking as well. Because if the whole idea is that it's an indulgence, it's something to unwind with, uh, then does it really matter if it's a spirit or a beer or wine? Are you really going to go for the one that you read the most recent article on having certain (laughs) beneficial properties? Like which one do you actually want to have? And that's probably the one that that you should have because if you're not having the element of satisfaction that you're actually looking for in the indulgence, then you're much more likely to to overindulge. And I've found that, uh, and, and I'm someone who I can control what I drink and when very easily. So I'm speaking of a place 
uh, speaking from a place that's maybe a little bit more, maybe a little different than, than some other listeners. But I've found that like I like wine, I like red wine in particular. And the less I pour in my glass, the more I actually enjoy it. Because when I know there's less and I've already I've already set, this is your glass. And instead of like a six ounce glass, I'll pour a three ounce glass. I spend more time with it. I take fewer sips with more time in between. I savor those sips more. And if I'm going to pretend that to have a glass of red wine is an indulgence that I'm trying to have an experience with, uh, experience comes with how you consume something, not the quantity with which you consume something. And when people are chasing experience with volume, that is a problem versus chasing experience for the actual experience itself. So there's nothing wrong with indulging, but there's a fine line between indulgence and abuse. And many of us get into abuse and pretend that it's an indulgence and they're yeah. not, they're not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I say like a whiskey sour, I think I've had one this year and you know, I, I like, I like a nice beer pairing with certain meals and probably that has happened, you know, five times this year so far. So we're on, on a real roll. Andrew's a wild man. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think if you, you just you need to use it because it, it truly can enhance the experience of of a nice meal, especially if in good company. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are your thoughts on carnivore? The diet. Yeah, not the dinosaurs. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which are clearly yeah. the more exciting, superior dinosaur for of sure. the dinosaur family. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I honestly don't spend a lot of time thinking about any of these. I mean, I would call them designer or fad diets. Um, carnivore specifically is something that's going to put you into ketogenesis. Um, you know, it's probably an even more strict keto diet than the keto diet because you're literally just eating meat. At least that's my understanding of it. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who would blast us with the nuances. I was going to say, wouldn't that depend on the protein versus fat concentration of the meat that you eat? Because if you're consuming mostly protein and not that much fat, then I would think your uh, I would think your blood sugar would ultimately be too high, and your fat you intake would be too low. Can get some gluconeogenesis from amino acids for sure. Uh, I don't like. I don't think I've ever seen a study that looks at like what are the beta hydroxybutyrate blood levels on carnivore versus I can't keto. Imagine why I, you're you know hasn't to come to the study. hasn't come to the top of my feed. <laughs> Um, so I, I think it's just, it's part of the popular culture that these, these diets pop up and, you know, there's people out there that for sure have had great success on things like carnivore and then they showcase their end of one thing. And what's always interesting about diets is when somebody has a success story with a diet, for some reason they be they evangelize it. They begin to think that, well, therefore, this is the only thing that should work for anybody ever. And I don't know why anyone would do anything different. You want to hear something Which awesome? is just to- totally, <laughs> totally bonkers thinking, right? So people are different and they have different metabolism and they have different 
responses to things that they eat and food intolerances and on and on. So no, one diet's not going to you know fix everything for everybody. But if you're comparing carnivore to a garbage, ordinary North American fast food laden diet, it's going to be better. There's no question about that. I, you know, there may be a question of some of the micronutrients that you're not getting. Um, but you know, I, so I, I, it's not one that I recommend. I think you can, you can do a lot better with a well-rounded whole food diet. Um, but if it's something that somebody wants to try and it's moving them away from a really harmful diet, then by all means. Yeah, I think it can certainly be beneficial depending on the person's circumstances. Uh, And I'm less concerned about nutrient intake because I think if someone's actually eating nose to tail and you're actually consuming organ meats and all these sorts of things, I think you're much less likely to run into that issue. So so there's part of the nuance, right, is, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. like you're you're eating the liver, you're eating the – I don't know, bull testicles. Or <laughs> <laughs> if you're uh, if you're fun like that, and then even something like vitamin C is what would be probably the the biggest concern uh, Scurvy. from from the perspective of a physician or a dietitian. But then you see people who have been on carnivore for four to five years now, and at least claim not to be supplementing or eating any fruits or vegetables, and clearly do not have scurvy. And I've, I've heard, I think there's only uh, guesses as to why that might be. And uh, the best one I've heard is that when you think about you know, sailors getting scurvy on on uh, on long journeys. They're eating dried versions of preserved meats rather than actually eating fresh uh, fresh meat. And maybe there's maybe there's something to that if you're just eating a dried out meat that doesn't have any of the other yeah. fluids that you I might mean, find in a fresh well documented <laughs> journeys of the 1400s uh, may not be a great information source but yeah. it takes time to develop deficiencies like the human body is designed to be famine resistant yeah which is amazing um but you know, like i have i have patients in the hospital who have scurvy and but they have been chronically malnourished do they come in with a peg on their leg and a (laughs) parrot on their shoulder (laughs) only once (laughs) but they've been chronically malnourished for more than a decade when when that sort of thing happens yeah so i think it can be helpful for people but my my bigger concern is sustainability and putting all your eggs into a particular dietary basket that i'm sure there's some people who can sustain that i'm sure there's people who can sustain that for their whole lives but you'd be an outlier because human beings are social and it's not difficult to go well i shouldn't say it's not difficult there are many circumstances in which it's not difficult once a person is is a certain distance along in their diet where they can go to a place where there's dessert and say no to dessert but when you have to say no to vegetables when you have to say no to fruit when you have to say no to any like dressing additive anything that can go on food that's going to make you can't just be saying no to everything all the time, especially completely reasonable things to eat under the vast majority of circumstances. So thinking like this is the thing that's going to change my life 
permanently, I don't know if it's a great option. If someone has, you know, digestive disorder, food intolerances, things they're trying to figure out, they're grossly overweight and they really like meat and <laughs> only eating meat seems like something that's reasonable for them to do for a period of time. I think that can all be quite helpful. But then you see uh, even some of the biggest proponents of the carnivore diet, a guy like Dr. Paul Saladino, even he now has gone back to adding in fruit, adding in a little bit of honey. And I find that most reasonable people who at one point in time really enjoyed the carnivore diet or had certain things to say about it that were positive have all turned into a modified version, which is essentially a whole foods diet that is very centralized around animal meats and animal products but also has sprinkled in other different food sources as well, which I think is where the vast majority of people would end up anyways, in which case it's not really a carnivore diet. It might be a meat-heavy diet, uh, but does not classify as carnivore. And what I was going to say when you were talking about people getting crazy, uh, standing behind their diets, I, I am or was a part of a Facebook group, which is like the big carnivore diet Facebook group. And I'm in all these different groups because I just like to keep my ear to the ground with what's going on. <laughs> and sometimes I pull out some of the more insane things that people say in these groups. And I don't want to sell this as, you know, common conversations and common opinions within <laughs> the groups, but you'd be surprised. I remember at the height of COVID hysteria in like mid 2020, somebody posted in there and was like hey did you notice that people who are on the carnivore diet don't get covid and then you know 20 to 30 people start chiming in and they're like yeah there's something here people who who eat carnivore can't get covid and i thought this is all very interesting (laughs) there are certainly there's certainly something to specific demographics of people who either don't suffer or or seemingly don't contract uh an infectious disease in the same way But I don't know that there's any real science, hard science to support that if you eat a certain way, you are protected from uh, infectious disease. Maybe that'll change. (laughs) But that's one of the ones that I publicly posted. And I'm like, this this is a little insane. Like, if this is how you feel about the carnivore (laughs) diet, you might be uh, you might be thinking about it. Well, I'd say there's evidence that if you eat poorly, then you're more susceptible to the serious effects of infectious illness. Sure. but I don't think you can say the opposite for any specific, you know, quote unquote, therapeutic diet. Yeah. Anyhow, moving on. Three questions left. Can you overtrain? And if so, how do you know that you are? Oh, OK. Um, you're, you're probably better qualified to answer that. Doesn't I matter. Mean, we're not, I mean, we're I not would mixing say... up the format. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Uh, I, well, uh, clearly you can overtrain. Um I think I mean your body needs needs time to to recover. So I mean the hallmark of let's just use the example of uh, muscle hypertrophy. You are creating micro damage to your muscles when you're doing resistance exercises, and you need time to rebuild that muscle and and grow it. So that means if you're continuously going in and doing the same things over and over again, and you're never allowing the time for that healing and, and regrowth to take place, then for sure you're, you're going to lose performance. I think how do you know is if, you're, if you are plateauing uh, or even if you're, you're having some losses in performance. So your times aren't getting better. Your max lifts are just you know, totally tapering off 
then and and you're working out you know every day and not taking any rest days uh, or not taking you know enough of a rest day then for sure that's probably an indicator plus if you're just really fatigued all the time or if you're feeling really hungry all the time then those might be signs too that your your physiology is not having enough time to recuperate um, and I could just give just one personal anecdote so when in my in my job I I go on call on the inpatient wards for a week at a time and when I do that my exercise routine basically evaporates for that week uh, so I might be able to do you know a couple of light like zone two type things uh, during that week and I almost always find that when I come back to the gym after that week off which is essentially a recovery week my strength is better than when I went on call in the first place so it's it's just an interesting consistent pattern that I've recognized and I've you know basically attributed that to the fact that I actually gave my body a chance to rest for that week yeah it depends it depends a lot uh on where the person is at because if you're fairly new to exercise then the more you exercise chances are the stronger you're going to get within reason right like if it's your first day you have to be very careful not to overdo it but within the amount of exercise you can do oh sorry that's me i don't even know where my phone is my apologies everyone oh Potential fraud. I didn't even know that was a thing you could do. On I've never, never seen that before. Yeah. The vast majority of phone calls I get, I almost never answer my phone if I don't know who Aren't, it is. Are you just sort of offended when people call you? A little without bit. Without texting first? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I have my phone on because my son is at day camp biking and uh, I have responsibilities. And eating bear paws. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't send me off the rails here. Okay, so getting back to what I was saying, uh, within reason, because if you're a beginner, you can clearly overdo it very easily. But assuming you're not doing that, the more volume you do as a beginner, the stronger and stronger and stronger you're going to get. Once you reach to a certain point where you're a fairly seasoned lifter, exerciser, less is always going to be more when it comes to strength. Like two to three days per week, is probably what's going to get somebody the strongest once they are fairly well trained and doing more than that is going for to a make... specific muscle group or are you yeah. talking uh, about just all over all around assuming yeah. you're doing assuming if you're working uh two days per week it's an upper lower uh or some like some version of a of movement split or if it's three days a week you do like uh you know hip and horizontal push pull one day and then squat and vertical push pull the other day it's just vol you're going to lift a lot of heavier weight and the recovery is going to be more valuable for you than the volume right you need to get enough volume but volume yeah. becomes less important. but that doesn't mean don't do anything on the other days no 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 but yeah. if, if 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 it was your job to be strong okay. you wouldn't be working out seven days per week right um if it was your job to be fit from an endurance perspective you'd need to be doing daily volume i'm only talking yeah. about strength specifically yeah yeah um, but getting back to uh the recovery question yeah you can certainly you can certainly overtrain. um it's different for different people uh some people have a little bit more capacity for volume than others 
And the way that you know that I found is irritability is a big sign. Uh, general fatigue is one that's a little bit more obvious and then sleep disturbance as well. So if you notice that you're having trouble staying asleep at night, you're waking a lot, waking up quite a bit throughout the night, and you can relate that to an increase in activity or reduction in the amount of rest you're taking, then uh, it's probably related to something like and overtraining. And I think, um, so DOMS, mm-hmm. delayed onset muscle soreness, which usually peaks 24 to 48 hours after uh, after a lifting session, Um it's interesting because I, I think as you as you become more accustomed to volume, you're actually less likely to experience DOMS, even though you're you know potentially pushing it to to max loads. Um, but if you are experiencing that, you get that you know you do say squats, and the next day your quads are killing you, then that's a good sign that you shouldn't be doing that exercise again with heavy loads probably for at least 72 hours until that soreness has mostly gone away. Yeah, basically you exercise, there's an inflammatory response. If you're going back and exercising again in the same way before that inflammatory response has has subsided a bit, then you are essentially moving more towards uh, overtraining and under yeah. recovering. Basically, if you can't sit on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't had then. <laughs> I haven't had real muscle soreness in probably over five years, I would say. Yeah, I would say you like you get a bit of stiffness. Yeah. I mean, if I do something but, completely different, like if I just went and did rock climbing for an hour and a half, yeah. I would get sore. But just yeah. doing like basic gym what about activity pickleball? stuff. <laughs> pickleball? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Pickleball's you could do it. You'd be demolished the next day. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the unathletic person's tennis, I think, is what they call uh, pickleball. Okay, two left. Let's bang these out. Uh, what blood tests would you order for yourself if you could see a monthly panel? Monthly, yeah. Like if every month you had to order blood work for yourself, what would you be most interested in seeing? And for you, not for like patients, I assume. Like, what would you be interested in seeing? Testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, well, the, first of all, there, there's nothing I would order monthly. I don't think uh, there there's anything that would be that I would be interested in that would be changing so dynamically that measuring it monthly would be beneficial. Uh, I think maybe every six months or annually for uh, for things like, you know, I'd be interested in what my lipids are doing uh, and my average blood glucose by a hemoglobin A1C value along with a fasting uh, morning glucose as well as a fasting serum insulin. If you have those three data points, uh, then you can have a good determination for your level of potential insulin resistance or sensitivity. Uh, so th- those are probably worthwhile looking at. I would say, you know, certainly for the 35 and over crowd. Um, but even so, I mean, the, the lipids, once you, once you know it once, unless you're making significant changes to your diet... Uh, or you're on lipid lowering therapy, then there's honestly not a huge uh, reason to to measure it frequently. Apart from that, um, I think everybody should probably have their uh, their TSH, so their thyroid function checked. Uh, so that's you know a commonly 
underdiagnosed phenomenon with hypothyroidism. You know, autoimmune thyroid disease is fairly common, and a lot of people wouldn't know it unless they they screened for it. And and it, you know, if you have some fatigue, you're not really sure what's going on. Then you know, it's one of the first things we do to to rule out. But again, you're never going to look at that monthly. That would just be a you know, let's check it once. And if it is out of whack, then we can look at your free thyroid hormones and decide whether or not you need further investigations. Um, what else? I mean, there's depending on your diet. So if you're if you're somebody who has some some GI issues, um, then probably knowing your uh, your B12 level, uh, your vitamin D level would be useful because those are things that are often deficient in people, depending on on what their diet is. Uh, or if they have a little bit of malabsorption, um, or, you know, which can occur in irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, again, another quite common phenomenon. Um, but those are just, you know, one-time checks. And then if they're low, then supplement or just supplement yeah. <laughs> if, if you, you know, are concerned about it. Um, but, you know, that's honestly, that's probably it. I mean, with... I guess, you know, just obviously I, I can't help but look at it through a physician's lens. So I'm always guided by what somebody's feeling clinically, and that's how we determine what we're going to test. But again, if you're if you're fatigued, more fatigued than you think you should be, if you're more out of breath than you think you should be with activity, um, then checking a, a CBC, which will give you your, your hemoglobin, would be important to, to check as well because, you know, undetected anemia uh, is is also important to know about. And along with that, I would get a ferritin, which is your uh, a marker of your total body iron stores, um, which is often lower than I'd like to see in uh, in who should you know, should be young, healthy people, and maybe an indication to increase iron containing foods or potentially supplement iron. That's a wonderful segue into our next question because I have nothing to add to this current one, uh, and I'll have very little to add to the last question. Any thoughts on giving blood and iron overload, especially in men, or I assume you could put uh, women who aren't menstruating into that category sure. as well? Uh, so iron overload, so basically this, this question is getting at a condition called hemochromatosis, which is a genetically inherited disease where you get iron overload and increased iron deposition in you know, essentially your entire body. Uh, but left on its own without any treatment, and the treatment, by the way, is just bloodletting, so that's why they're talking about donating blood. Uh, left on its own, if you get enough iron deposited in your body tissues over many, many years, then you can actually end up with organ failure. So people will get um, you know, heart failure, heart rhythm problems. Uh, they can get uh, liver failure, liver cirrhosis. Uh, would probably those would be the two main things. You can get it deposited in your pancreas, develop diabetes. Uh, so lots of not great things. So it is good to know about. Um, it seems to be mostly in the uh, European, specifically Irish, British Isles uh, genetic pool. Uh, so if you have, if you know of somebody in your family and you're in that, you know, ethnic group, then probably worthwhile getting checked. So the two things that we look at there would be the ferritin. And in this case, it would be really high instead of really low. Uh, usually, you know, once it's kind of above the 300 mark, we probably 
start to wonder why, although it can go up for other reasons. And then a transferrin saturation. So transferrin is the iron transport protein in our blood. So we look at the saturation of that. So if it has too much iron bound to it, so once you cross over the 45 to 50% mark, then that would be considered iron overload. So if you have that plus a high ferritin, uh, then you need to be uh, genetically tested for the mutations that would lead to the disease. So if you are someone who has uh, iron overload, is that something that's reversible or you can only prevent further damage by doing something like yeah it's not really reversible like once the damage has occurred so men typically present with the disease if they didn't know about it about 10 years before women do because of menstruation right so women don't tend to accumulate as much iron until they're postmenopausal so typically if if someone has it then it would be you know a man in his in his 40s late 40s to 50s who's coming in with actual signs of of organ damage because they've had iron overload for their entire life um but you know caught earlier on so part of the screening blood work that i do for people includes those tests and you know i've had patients who screen on the high end and we send them for the genetic test they're negative it doesn't fully rule out the disease but my recommendation to them is yeah for sure you should uh, just go donate blood you know every three months or so and that will keep your iron levels at a reasonable uh, level that it's not going to cause any harm. Plus, you're benefiting the greater healthcare system by donating blood. And are there any other signs that uh, that people that you can point to that come before it's too late? Or there is there anything other than just the blood test that's going to let someone know early that this is maybe a problem? Unless you've developed some of the end organ effects, honestly, not really. Um, they do. People can present with like bronzing of their skin. So the the old term for the disease in like the Irish population was called the bronze diabetes. Mm. Um, but I mean, uh, you've got to have pretty significant iron deposition for your skin to turn brown. Sure. Yeah. But uh, I mean, most people would probably think that was great, right? <laughs> That's right. This day and age. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Those are all our questions. We got through them all. Awesome. Anything else you want to add in closing? No, I don't think so. I think you know. I thought it was a smashing success. We well, should, should keep again your <laughs> uh, keep your eyes open to my uh, Instagram channel, where uh, when we do our next one, yeah, whenever we don't have an immediate yeah. topic between to shirtless photos, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's right, <laughs> showing my uh, bronze diabetes. Okay, thanks for listening in.